Welcome to this special Thirsty episode where we are going to be answering questions that have been submitted by Pastor Lightnin's Charlotte Lutheran High School students, and then I also have some questions that were submitted by our Wisconsin Lutheran School 8th graders. So we have uh, Pastor Jeremy Lightnin here, along with Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer and myself, Pastor Michael Zarling. So, Jeremy, you ready with one of your students' questions? Well, these are categorized, and so I, I think uh, as the host, you should pick the category for us to start. We've got creation, uh, the Bible, gender and marriage, devil, demons, angels, Christ, Christology, the afterlife, letting your light shine, baptism, facing struggles slash theodicy, uh, differing denominations, and then being a pastor slash personal opinions. Let's start with the last one. Being, being a pastor, pastor, personal opinions. Okay. Uh, well, I will just draw one randomly out of the deck. If you weren't called to be a pastor, what would you be? Nathan, you want to go first? I mean, you tried doing other things first. I tried doing a lot of other things. Um, actually, I was just talking about this with my daughter the other day because she's kind of trying to figure out what she's going to do next year for college. Um, I think if I was not a pastor, I would have been a lawyer. I think that's where I would have I would have gone. Um, almost did that once. Actually left MLC and almost joined the Navy to go into JAG and get my law degree paid for that way. Yeah, every once in a while I think about that now, you know, going, you know, the ministry is hard and, you know, maybe I should do something else, you know, midlife crisis type thing. And then I realize I don't have any other talents. I can't really do anything else. And, but every once in a while it's good, like today, visiting shut-ins with uh, two of our eighth grade girls, and then doing that the last two days with uh, two boys each day. And then uh, coming back to school, asking them, like yesterday, asking the boys, you know, what'd you think? You know, did you enjoy, what'd you enjoy most? Was it getting out of class for two hours, spending time with your pastor, getting a donut tomorrow, visiting shut-ins? And one of these boys, he said, no, I didn't think I would like this, but that was really fun, visiting shut-ins. Can we do that again? That's kind of a neat thing of the ministry. It's uh, so different of being able to do a baptism, do a funeral, uh, being able to share God's word maybe with teens that are struggling and so forth, or older adults too. And sometimes, you know, I need a reminder from God. Yeah, you you actually can do some of the stuff that I've called you to do and I've equipped you to do it because by God's grace, he hasn't equipped me to do anything else. What about you, Jeremy? Uh, my answer to this is threefold. I used to think that it would be fun to run a restaurant, but since then I found out that it is a cutthroat business and it is miserable, and uh, I don't think I would do, want to do that anymore. Um, I have also thought that uh, more recently, it looked like a lot of fun one time when I was looking out of our parsonage window down in Kansas and watching a crew at our neighbor's house taking down a tree with chainsaws. And I thought, if I could be part of a tree removal crew and use a chainsaw on a regular basis, that would be fun. But most recently, I've thought that over the years, various people have told me I give good back rubs. 
And so I think that I was, I was, if I had other gifts that I could use in a different way, I should probably be some kind of a massage therapist. There you go. I have a follow-up question for you guys. This was brought up by one of the young ladies today when I asked them, while we're driving to the shut-in's house of, you know, what do you want to do after high school and so forth? And one young lady had said that she knew what she wanted to be since she was seven. And I thought, that was about the age I was when I realized I was going to be a pastor. So what about you guys? At what age did you realize that the ministry was what you wanted to do? Was it about 37? 36. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, what happened was I originally went to Luther Prep in Watertown, Wisconsin as a freshman, thinking that I would become a teacher. And uh, then I found out that teachers had to take piano and if you're in the pastor track you did not have to take piano so I switched over to the pastor track Uh, it was then in between my junior and senior year of prep that I went on a mission trip to Grenada in the uh, Caribbean called Project Timothy and we helped do a vacation Bible school and that was probably a turning point where before that I was more or less just coasting along the idea of being a pastor. And that was one, I always thought, you know, oh, well, my dad did this and it's just kind of the family business and it would just kind of be a same old boring thing. Uh, But then when I went on that trip, uh, I realized, no, this is very challenging. Uh, Just trying to relate Jesus to little preschoolers uh, of a different culture and uh, that that was kind of a turning point where I w- was more sincere about my desire to be a pastor. So then I have a follow-up to that follow-up. This was asked by one of our eighth graders who is not Wisconsin Synod Lutheran, so it's interesting. So maybe, Jeremy, if you could answer this question based on how it is in our Wisconsin Synod, and then, Nathan, if you know anything about how this would be in other church bodies. So this young man asked, how do I become a pastor? The answer for Wisconsin Synod pastors is that uh, you go to Martin Luther College for four years and get a Bachelor of Arts degree. Which, uh, which by the way, Nathan's degree is a lot smaller on the wall than mine is from Northwestern College. Just, just letting everyone know that. that. Yes, because the size of the paper <laughs> says nothing <laughs> about... Anyway... Uh, so you go you you go to Martin Luther College. We do have two prep schools that kind of get student get high school students ready for going to college, but that's not required. And then uh, after four years of Martin Luther College, you go to uh, four years of Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. In uh, the third year of the seminary is a vicar year or an internship, and uh, that uh, there there are other arrangements that can be made. I know we have the Pastoral Studies Institute at the seminary that sort of is a track for non-traditional students, but for the most part, uh, that's that's the pattern that we follow. I don't know a lot about other denominations um, other than the one story I had from when I was down in Texas uh, doing some research for 
home missions uh, in January. I talked to a young man at one of the churches in the town where we were doing work at, and he, I asked him, oh, you're new to the ministry. I said, well, what, what program did you go through to become a pastor in your church body? And he said, well, our pastor died about a year ago, and on his deathbed, he laid hands on me and named me his successor. And so I've been the pastor in our church ever since. And so I know, yeah, there's some church bodies where it's a lot less formal. There is no training. Um, somebody could just one day not be a pastor, and the next day they find out they're the pastor of a congregation. Yeah, this isn't so much with being a pastor, but getting a license then to be ordained to you know marry people and so forth. That's just, you know, you sign up online and you can get that because the husband of one of our members... He had owned a bar, and so some friends had asked him to marry them. And so he was thinking about just doing that. But he did ask me, and I said, well, you can do that. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it. But in my estimation, that kind of cheapens what I do and everything that I've done to uh, be able to bless marriages and legally do this in the, for the state. And so he didn't do that, but... You know, that's another way of, of going about that. It's not as extreme of study as we have in our church body. Well, one of my professors up at MLC wanted to show the absurdity of how easy it is to get ordained in our country now, and his stuffed armadillo was an ordained minister. There you go. You have another question, Jeremy? Name your category. Nathan, why don't you pick this time? it's getting to be that time of year so why don't we go with the the demons and satanism one so this is devil demons angels and paranormal uh why did god let the devil tempt adam and eve Uh, so why did god allow the devil to tempt adam and eve I think I just had this one a little while ago for my eighth graders also, and I don't know if there's a really good answer that I gave them. Maybe you guys have a better answer than I did. I basically said, we don't know why God would allow that, except for the fact that it does then allow God to demonstrate his love, because he can tell us that he loves us, just like maybe a boyfriend will tell his girlfriend that he loves her, but it's another thing when that boyfriend you know, takes her out to eat, buys her chocolates, and pays for the meal, and gets her flowers and things like that. He's demonstrating love, uh, and that's the way God does. He can tell us he loves us because God is love, but he demonstrated his love by then giving the promise of the Savior, of the woman's seed that would crush the serpent's head. You know, I've heard others try to explain this, that God didn't want robots, so he wanted us to be able to choose to love him. I've never liked that answer. I think that that brings up some more issues with free will and sin. Um, I think, again, it's one of those things we have to leave. This falls into what you know the hidden knowledge of God. We don't know why God did it this way, but that's what he, he chose to do. Um, and so I've just always been comfortable living in that kind of ambiguousness of this is one of those things where because God doesn't tell us in scripture it's not necessary for our salvation to know why we can speculate but we're never actually going to come up with a reason um, until we get to heaven and God reveals that to us if it's his will so 
this kind of is a spin-off of the the robot answer uh, but i i think it's one that is a little bit more lutheran in in bent because i think you're right that saying well god didn't want robots he wanted people to be able to choose to love him that does kind of verge on the the free will debate uh, which we have a enslaved will not a free will but uh I, I think a good way to think of it is um, let's say that God gave you huge, enormous muscles, uh, if you're you know, a man or a woman, I suppose, uh, that, you, that you are very physically fit, but then uh, there was no outlet for, for you to use or exercise your physical fitness. Um, and uh, it would be kind of pointless for him to give you this great strength uh, and not ever give you a, a real-life opportunity to use it. And if you think that way about Adam and Eve in righteousness, they had spiritual strength. They, they were created perfect and holy in God's image. And then he also gave them an opportunity to exercise that holiness by resisting temptation. Um, so if you... If you kind of think of it in those terms, it's not so much that um, they had a, a, you know, a choice to make or they were being something other than robots, it's, it's that they, God created them for this, you know, to do good works, and here was one of those good works that they could do, which was resist temptation. So here's a question that kind of ties in with this topic, and it was interesting, I was asked this question by an 8th grader before class, before I'd even asked them to write anything down. So then I told them to write this one down. And then I got the exact same question later on when I went into the 3rd and 4th grade classrooms to read to them. Instead of reading to them, uh, the teachers had them ask questions. And so I got the same question three times from three different groups. And I said, where did this question come from? And it was a question that the bus driver had asked them. So I'm not sure why the bus driver wanted this answer to this question. But the question is, if God loves everyone, does he also love the devil? Yes. <laughs> but big asterisk. <laughs> well, this gets into... You know, one of those, I think this is getting into an area where people, they look at a scripture passage that says God is love. And they want that to mean that, that God, is a lo God is love. God is accepting of everyone. And at the same time, while love is one of God's immutable qualities, justice and holiness are also his immutable qualities. And so, while God loves all, Satan has already been, pl been placed under judgment. He rebelled against God. There was no chance for him for redemption. God judged him in the moment of his sin to hell. And while we don't like to think of it in these terms, that was a loving action of God because God must punish sin. Um, it's the same with us. While we like to say, well, and we do correctly say that our sins have been forgiven, and we are not punished for our sins. There still was punishment for sin. Christ was punished in our place. Um, and now be through faith we have been given the forgiveness of sins. But God did punish that sin with Christ. And so God is acting in love by punishing the devil. He's acting 
according to his nature, and he could act no other way. So the way I answered it was that God did, in the past tense, did love the devil as a created angel, but then when the devil rebelled after the seventh day of creation, then uh, he hated everything having to do with God, and like you said, Nathan, uh, God is just, and I can't, I'm not going to say whether God can or cannot love the devil, but the, the devil is now pure evil, and God cannot stand evil slash sin in his presence, and therefore, if you want to use the word hate, uh, that would be a word, but the way we use hatred probably is different than maybe God and his hatred, but what I said was, in his justice, he would not be, I don't think it would be loving the devil. All right? Is that? Okay. Yeah, the asterisk that I put on my yes was basically what you just said. It Maybe a better way to say it would be, not does God love the devil, but God loved the devil uh, as, his, as his creature, and uh, it was the devil's own rebellion and uh rejection of God that uh, made God now hate or punish, however you want to put it. Yeah, I think it comes to, because we're studying this right now with our eighth graders of uh, the Exodus and Pharaoh hardening his heart toward God and eventually God hardened his heart. What we covered today was hardened it so much that he caused uh, Pharaoh to get so upset with the Israelites that he just had to follow them into the Red Sea. And we even watched a clip of uh, the Ten Commandments, and there, you know, Yul Brenner as Pharaoh, one of his uh, advisors says, uh, we can't fight against God. You know, this God is for them. They're crossing the Red Sea, and there's a huge uh, pillar of fire. We should just let them go and uh, Yul Brenner's Pharaoh says that it's better to die in battle than to go home as cowards or something to that effect. Uh, and, and I pointed out to the kids, I said, that is a good representation of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, that he, he has to do this. And I bring that up because I think that's the way the devil is, that he, is, he can't do anything that's good anymore. So, you got another question, Jeremy? Yeah, I... I thought I made you two pick a category, so I'll pick a category now. I'm picking different denominations, and, oh, there's two good ones here. Um, I'll do them both. We'll, we'll do one at right. a time. Uh, we'll start with, how do pastors from different denominations talk slash get along? That's a good question. I don't really know the answer. People ask me, because I've been in Racine for 19 years, well, do you know so-and-so as a pastor? Do you know that pastor? And I don't know any of the other pastors. I, I'd be cordial to them if I if I would talk to them and so forth. Uh, although there are a couple of, now they say that, there are a couple of guys here at Shoreland, the fathers of uh, daughters on the cross-country team, and I've gotten to know them just standing on the sideline watching the girls when they run because there's a lot of dead time you see them like three three or four times unless you're chasing them down and one of them is the uh, one of the chaplains at one of our local hospitals and he uh, he just gave me his number and he said uh, if you ever have any issues at the hospital you call me I'll take care of it for you 
You know, and that's, that's a helpful thing to have. Uh, we may disagree theologically and sometimes strongly on certain things, but I think when we're together in the ministry, uh, that we're all trying to serve God, you know, we have that commonality. But I don't know how other pastors get along with each other that aren't in our church body. I don't have a lot of experience with this being so new to the ministry other than some anecdotal stuff I have um, from talking to other pastors that I've I've known in Wells, and they've talked about how, you know, very often they, they have cordial relations um, with guys in their town, especially in a smaller town. I know the pastor in Watoma, I think they would there was usually like a clergy breakfast. He went to it a couple times, but he said it would sometimes get awkward because they'd say, well, let's all join together in prayer. And he would say, I, you know, our teaching on fellowship, I can't, I can't pray. I don't, I shouldn't say our teaching. The biblical teaching on fellowship is I can't, I can't pray with you. That's, that's going against what God's word says. And he said that that sometimes would make situations awkward. Some guys would understand it and say, okay. And others would say, what are you saying? I'm not a Christian. It's like, well, no, I'm not judging your faith. I'm just doing what God tells us in scripture because we're, we're not the same. We don't believe the same thing. We don't interpret scripture correctly. Um, getting a little more close to home. Um, I know that there's for the most part, um, I was just reading cause I'm a nerd of these sort of things. I was reading through the proceedings from the convention this summer. Um, and they were talking about the informal talks we have going on with Missouri that we want to keep those lines of communication open with the, uh, with a denomination that we once were in fellowship with, uh, but have broken off fellowship. Um, but still we want to keep those talks going. And so I know there, there's, there's a mutual respect and an understanding that no, we are, we are not walking together. I've had a little bit of experience. Uh, one of my favorite stories to tell is when we were in Kansas and uh, I happened to have my clergy collar on and I was overseeing, I was dropping my kids off and then picking them up from swimming lessons and there was another guy in a clergy collar who walked up to me at the same swimming lessons at the pool and said, I think we're in the same line of work. And uh, we both kind of had a chuckle, and he turned out to be the Episcopalian uh, pastor in town. And uh, it was kind of nice to build up a friendship with him for the brief time that he was there. Um, he took me on a tour one time of the cathedral, the Episcopal Cathedral, and there were some interesting things to see there. Um, <clears throat> and uh, did you know that Episcopalians technically are supposed to believe in purgatory. I did not know that. It, yeah. Yeah, because I remember the Episcopalians are the American branch of the Anglican Church. So they follow whatever Anglican teaching is. And, I mean, for all intents and purposes, the Anglican Church is basically Roman Catholicism. I think they've they've branched away a little bit, but, I mean, that's going back to Henry the eighth wanting an annulment and not getting it so just declaring his own church um and so yeah I, that doesn't surprise me that episcopalians would have a belief of purgatory um they probably have a lot of other catholic beliefs that we maybe don't think about but because they just kind of copied and pasted directly from roman catholicism there's probably more holdovers with that as well what was interesting is this guy came from a uh, southern baptist 
background. He grew up, uh, his his dad and his grandpa were uh, Baptist pastors, and then he kind of just branched off and became the opposite end of things with the high church uh, Episcopalian Anglicanism. But uh, I I think of other people, uh, members of my church in Michigan who had a little breakfast group with uh, their their buddies and uh, one time my member asked me to come along and be the pastor there not be the pastor but just so that they could meet his pastor and other uh, members of that breakfast group had brought their pastor along before and so we ended up crossing paths and uh, I guess the answer to the question is you just you, you try to behave and act like you would with anybody else who are polite uh, you, you know, say something clearly about the biblical teaching when you need to, but for the most part, it's like making another friend. Yeah, I remember back when I was a young pastor in Radcliffe, and we had put something on our church website about infant baptism and another pastor from uh, from Radcliffe, and they would all have been, uh, you know, non-nominational Baptist, Methodist-type churches down there that did not agree doctrinally and with infant baptism and you know he he called me and we were cordial but he asked questions like well uh, you know it doesn't say to baptize all babies I said well you're right it doesn't say very clearly baptize babies but it does say baptize all nations and I just went through clearly different portions of scripture like you and I would do with infant baptism and uh, though I didn't he, he didn't leave the conversation converted to Lutheranism or infant baptism. It was a cordial conversation. And, you know, he wasn't calling me up to uh, badmouth me because I believed in infant baptism. And I, same thing with him. Uh, what's your other question? On well, actually, it came from, uh, it's kind of connected to the first one, and I didn't even realize it uh, because it reminded me that I've, I've got a friend in the area who is a pastor of another non-Lutheran church. He is the one of the coaches for Pacer Wrestling, and his son is the one who wrote this question, and we've actually been over to their house to eat. And uh, So you, you can make friends with pastors of different denominations. That's, I think, the point. Um, so this question, the questioner actually signed his name to it, so I'm going to read it along with the question. What is the biggest thing keeping the Wells Church from growing with younger people uh, slash Christians besides just the fact that many Gen Zers aren't religious. Signed, James the Baptist. (laughs) You want to go first? I think that's, I know, a question that we're struggling synod-wide. I would also say it's not just Wells. Some of the stuff I've been reading, it's American well, world, I shouldn't say world Christianity, because there is seeing some pretty large growth in South America and Africa and even in Asia. Uh, but I'll just say American Christianity in general um, is seeing the same kind of declines we are. Um, I think a big part of it is the secularization of society, that people just don't see the value in church anymore. Um, some people would get into a debate over worship style if we need to change worship style to draw more people in and I I I have opinions on worship um, but I would say it's more 
I think people are looking for faithful preaching of the word. Um, and I think that's really Wells' strength is that we are faithful to God's word. Um, where people looking at so many other churches, um, you look at just the massive drop off in number that Elka um, has seen basically since their formation. Um, and I think a large part of that is because they don't have a set standard. They, they change with the winds and shifts of culture instead of staying rooted in God's word. And I think people see that. I think people nowadays are looking for authenticity and reality. Um, and I think that's something we can offer. And I think it's something we should proclaim that we are faithful to the truth of God's word. What I often talk about is that the youth of today are not belongers. They're not like my generation and older where you just belong to things, whether it's scouting or 4-H or F, uh, you know, Future Farmers of America, or, you know, whatever club, bowling, whatever it was, you don't just belong. They want to do stuff. They want to be involved. And so part of what I'm trying to do in our ministry is get them involved in stuff. You know, soccer camp, doing a couple mission trips, uh, those kinds of things. I know, Jeremy, you can talk about this with your paper on family ministry. I think that's a big thing. But what you were talking about, Nathan, too, some people will say, well, you have to have a different kind of worship style to attract the young people. Usually that's older people that say that about the younger people. But again, going to my experience with uh, two young eighth graders that I took to visit a shut-in today, I just told them ahead of time, you know, just pray the Lord's Prayer with us. But when it came to the confession of sins and the prayer, uh, O Christ, Lamb of God, they joined in. You know, There's nothing written in because it's in their heart. It's in their mind. And that's the beautiful thing about a liturgy like we have is it's from the little kids that can't read all the way to the older people who have Alzheimer's that can't read, and yet those things are in their heart. But the kids may think it's boring until you make it real to them. And I think like what we did today was making it real. Uh, so I think that's part of it is they have to, it has to come for the whole family, but I think it's also part of it getting them involved in ministry uh, so that so again, they're not just belonging, they're doing. I think both of you summed up anything that I would have said perfectly, so I, I don't know if I can add anything. All right. Uh, let's see if I got one for you guys. Um, this, is a, this is a deeper one. This might get into what, some of your questions, too. Uh, what are we supposed to do when we have feelings of strong depression or thoughts of suicide? So this is a, a person, you know, a young person that may be having these, you know, not talking about someone else. I think this is a person that's thinking about himself or herself. So how are we supposed to, what are we supposed to do when we have feelings of strong depression or thoughts of suicide? One of the first things that I would want to do is um, get, get into a conversation with this person and uh, if, if nothing else, maybe this person can just have a conversation with him or herself and uh, take some, do some examining of what, what has led up to this. Is this, um, is this due to uh, circumstances in your life or uh, you know, chemical imbalance that you personally suffer from? Um, 
I think the biggest thing though is I'd, I I would want to be talking to this person. I I don't know if it would be helpful to have uh, some kind of a magic bullet. Here's your pastor answer. It, it really needs to be face to face. Let's talk about you personally and your struggles and apply specific passages of God's word to uh, whatever is is bothering you. Um, and can you repeat, did the question say something about suicide? Yeah, thoughts of suicide. Um, don't do that. Yeah, and that's, I think... That's, harm, that's harming yourself. That's breaking the fifth commandment. And uh, it, it, it is... I, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would say this to the person directly face-to-face, but uh, I've talked to more than one person who has... Uh, been tempted to commit or or tried to commit suicide and later on came back to say that was a profoundly selfish thing that I was doing and and that's just try to look at it through that light yeah and and with that I've had the times I think with almost all of my daughters at least once where they had a friend on the phone and is late at night and the friend is crying and talking to Abby or Miriam or Lydia or Belle. And then they call, they call me in and they say, can I talk, can I talk to my dad about this? Uh, and you know, whoever's on the phone, I'm going to assume it's a girl. He said, yes. And then I talked to them and so forth, but there is no easy answer. Like you said, Jeremy, and it's not a quick one time I shared a Bible passage or two and now they're fine. This, this takes a long time. I personally would not counsel anyone to go to uh, secular counselors today. You know, find a good uh, Lutheran Christian counselor. Talk to your pastor in addition to the the counselor, so that your pastor knows. And hopefully, this is where you have a good enough relationship with your pastor and with your parents that you can talk to talk to people about this. Because when I talk to my young people about this, it's not a rare thing. I think it's, it's, I was just talking about someone with this, with someone this morning, what a blessing it is now to have Christian Family Solutions as a resource that is available to us in, in Wells. Um, because as pastors, we can awful, offer spiritual support and counseling. Um, but some of these things with depression and with suicide, you know, if, it, if it's a medical thing, yes, we can counsel you, but you really need a professional to diagnose that to get you the care you need, and that's something that we can we can help with referrals and leading someone to that. And then I think too, it's one of those things where, especially if people are are lonely, uh, it's when those thoughts come. And just to be around others, to find someone they can talk to, who will listen to them, can really help with those things. Um, and to know that about yourself, it's like, well, if I'm going to be alone. Um, is this something where Satan knows this is a weakness of mine and he's going to attack me? These thoughts are going to come bubbling up. Um, and to immerse ourselves in God's word, but then also to go find other Christians that we can grow together with and be encouraged from. So here's a follow-up question. that This is written by the same student. How does our mental health impact our faith? I think... This is one of the things with Western culture where we have kind of wanted to, and I'm guilty of this as well, we kind of separate intellect and faith. And really they're both kind of part of our 
our spirit. So if we're having mental health struggles, that's going to impact our spiritual life. If we're having spiritual struggles, that's going to impact our mental life. Um, you read through some of the Psalms, um, especially some of the penitential Psalms. Um, I'm thinking of like Psalm 51. Um, I can't think of the other one off the top of my head where David talks about how it felt like his bones were wasting away within him. That that spiritual struggle he was having with hit, with sin were having both an extreme mental effect on him and a physical effect on him, which is what we see in depression. We see both that mental and physical symptoms. And so, yeah, that guilt, we talk about guilt as a burden of weighing someone down. We talk about, um, you know, the flaming arrows of Satan, that Satan attacks us in many different ways. And so, yeah, mental health and spiritual health are intertwined and do affect each other. And with that, I would also add is the, the physical health, because we're body, mind, and spirit, it's good for us to get physically in shape. Uh, for me, I, I have been doing a couple of weeks of running. I, I really despise running now, but I did it to get in shape for a 5K. But, you know, biking, uh, you know, you're doing something. What are you doing, Jeremy, for your exercise? Uh, Krav Maga. And what is that? That is Israeli street fighting. <laughs> there you go. It, but just to do something physical, because when, our, when we feel fat and lazy, maybe because we are, then that's going to affect our mental spirit. And then mentally, that's going to affect our spirituality. And vice versa, if we are you know, going to church, if we're feeding ourselves on the sacrament, if we are uh, singing God's praises with God's people, a lot of times we're going to, that's going to affect our uh, mental health. As uh, Nathan was talking there, um, I, I was thinking, I was going straight for the Psalms too. I also thought of uh, Proverbs where it says, above all else, guard your heart because it is the wellspring of your life. And so it, it, is, it is good to be f focused on your mental health. Don't, not to be obsessive about it and to let it you know, just rule you all the time, but to, to be looking at your heart, not your organic heart, but your inner self and your, your uh, feelings and desires and uh, be aware of what's going on there. Guard your heart. Um, uh, but then the Psalms, it, when you were talking, I, I came across Psalm 42 and 43. They kind of go together. And the EHV translates the refrain of Psalm 42 and 43 this way. Why are you so depressed, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And then that's the, in the, throughout the Psalm, the, the refrain. Why are you so depressed, O my soul? And then... The other one, I don't know if this is the one you had in mind, but when David talks about in Psalm 51, but he also talks about a physical thing going on with him in Psalm 63. He says, God, you are my, this is actually, we sing this in the, um, the morning praise, that one of the settings for the matins in the new service settings. We sing this psalm uh, on a regular basis if you follow that order. Um, God, you are my God, eagerly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you in a dry and dreary land without water. So you can see that it, it carries over what Michael was saying before, that there's an overlap between 
how well your soul is doing and how well your body is doing that it's not just your soul that thirsts for God, but your body does too. It's interesting that you have the EHV that translates that as depressed because several years ago, I remember having one of my members, it was about my age, had talked to me, just, Pastor, you got to be careful about using the word depressed because that's a, you know, medical type of term. So, you know, I, I don't know if I'm very careful with using it in sermons and so forth, but it just came to mind recently that, and I started to say melancholy, because that's more of a sadness and not so much a clinical depression type thing. Yeah, I think that's more where we make the distinction. As we talk about being depressed in general, that kind of feeling sad, and then clinical depression is, you know, where there's actually a chemical imbalance that needs to be corrected either through therapy or through medication. Did you have anything else on, on those kind of topics with your questions, or do you want to go with a diff- something different, Jeremy? Well, what if I narrow the choices down for you okay. to uh, gender roles, marriage, and sex, or letting your light shine, or just creation? Let's go with creation, because I've got a creation question from an eighth grader for you guys. Okay, I'm just grabbing randomly from the middle. <clears throat> I feel like we've covered this before. Okay. If God is all-knowing, why would he create everything knowing what was going to happen? Yeah, let's skip that one then. Okay. Uh, I've got a short answer. Because it was worth it. <laughs> um, the Bible speaks of monsters like leviathans and dragons. Does that mean they ever existed? I would say yes. Uh, it's kind of interesting taking my 7th and 8th graders through, because, you know, talking about creation and then, you know, the devil and so forth and dragons, and, and then uh, reading... Job 40 and 41 on Leviathan and Behemoth. And what are these things? And, oh, this sounds like, you know, like a brontosaurus. So what is this other one, Le- Leviathan? Oh, this sounds like a fire-breathing sea dragon. Oh, that, and they go, that can't be true. And then I pull up videos of the bombardier beetle that shoots fire out of its rear end, that it can click its legs or something to be able to have a clicker. And then it also passes gas, and then it lights it, and then it, it fires at whatever uh, predator is coming at it. So if, if God can do that with this little beetle, he's thinking he can do this with this huge sea dragon. And then I always tell him, too, is uh, in every culture, there are dragon stories, and dragon pictures and so forth. Uh, and so you know, I think those are just different dinosaurs that were still around, even probably in the Middle Ages. Yeah, I, I don't really have much more to add to that other than, yeah, it, I mean, I, I believe that there were dinosaurs living on the earth pre-flood. Um, it does definitely seem that a lot of things changed after the flood and they weren't able to survive after that. Um, I think we need to be careful. Um, I'm going to throw a jab at the Creation Museum here. Mm. Um, I think we need to be careful on how far we push some of these things um i know when i was at the ark encounter i went in and there was the one diorama that had a coliseum with Mm. people riding i don't know if it was a velociraptor or whatever but i'm like okay this 
from an apologetic standpoint, I feel like this doesn't help. This is setting up some levels of credulity that people who are already struggling with belief are going to look at and say, I don't know if I can buy that. But I have no problem saying, well, there were dinosaurs pre-flood, and it does seem like there were at least some remnants um, that survived. And again, it is interesting that every culture has some sort of dragon um, that they remember. Yeah, and you know why? Why would uh, dragons slash dinosaurs not survive? Like you said, it'd be climate, but also because people realized, hey, these are dangerous beasts, and you know we got to get rid of these things. The same reason uh, people might get rid of a, a lion or a bear because they are they're around their village, they're around. Uh, well, there was just a, a bear. I think it was Yosemite but it attacked two people and a dog and killed them. Well, that took that bear out. Well, if something's bigger than a bear, it can do that. You know, like a, a dinosaur, they're going to take care of that too. So what's your creation question? Since God gave us authority over all creation, does this include space? And, and what's your answer for that? Well, you guys get to answer it first. Yes. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, we've already started utilizing, I mean, it depends on what you're meaning by space. I mean, I would say we have satellites in orbit around the Earth that's in space. We've utilized that. Um, I'm sure if Christ doesn't come in the near future, we'll probably expand um, farther out into our own solar system. I don't know what that'll look like. That's part of the joy of reading science fiction novels is imagining that sort of thing but that's part of that's part of God's creation and it's there for us to use and to manage um, as the pinnacle of his creation I need to adjust my answer no <laughs> and and actually I, I was just reading the other night um, I've, to, I've talked before about how much I love the axioms of C.F.W. Walther. And uh, see, he doesn't even remember me talking about this. Cause anyway, uh, I, I was reading through them, uh, the section on uh, free will and what Walther says. And uh, one of the, the ones, uh, right, actually, I think it was the section right before that. Maybe it was about original sin. And it says um, humans lost... When, when the, no, it was the image of God. Humans lost their dominance over creation when they lost the image of God. Uh, and, and so, although we were originally created to be dominant over everything, uh, now we, we, don't, we don't really have that anymore. Um, we, we can certainly come close to it, but uh, if, if nature or a meteor shower or uh, whatever wants to, really wants to let us have it, uh, there's not much we can do to defend ourselves. Um, and that shows you how uh, vital it is that we trust God is taking care of us. So then the student asked a second question. Does this mean we might populate other planets? And there, like you said, uh, Nathan, about science fiction, I'm reading one right now called Artemis, which is a colony on the moon. This is the same author that had 
written the book, uh, The Martian, which got turned into a movie. And then I just started listening to H.G. Wells' story, uh, War of the Worlds. That one's more of Martians coming and populating the Earth. Uh, but I, I would say, too, you know, we are not, like you said, Jeremy, we don't have authority over this world, let alone another world. But we, do, we are caretakers of, of what God has given us. So Jeremy really just kind of made me think there, and I, I agree with him that I would say that, like what God says, you know, now the ground is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. You will earn the produce of the ground by the sweat of your brow. And so I think that factors into it. I would say it's, there's nothing in Scripture that would preclude us from inhabiting other worlds in our solar system. Um, it's the feasibility aspect. I mean, we proved in the 60s that people can live on the moon uh, for a short period of time. But whether that would ever be long-term or whether we would ever see any of the sort of terraforming that we see depicted in science fiction, I don't know if that's within our capability to do. But could there be... I mean, we've shown that we can have long-term research stations in some of the most inhospitable places on this planet. I would say it's possible we could do the same thing on others. Got another one, Jeremy? Sure. Uh, well, it wouldn't be a good question and answer session without at least one gender roles in marriage slash sex tap topic. So let's go with... Uh, Can women be ushers, considering they're not preaching, merely serving? So I get this question pretty often from the ladies in our congregation. You know, they they go, Pastor, uh, could we have ladies as ushers? And I say, yeah. Well, then why don't we? And I tell them, well, because ushers are servants. It's a servant role, so definitely it could be men or women. But... This is one of the opportunities for men, especially now in our congregation, it's young men, for them to serve. And if you as ladies take this away from them, you're already tired because you're doing so much in the church, in your home. And now it's one less role for the men to play. And then they go, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And then I I teach them, what we're trying to do by us is have young men, you see that, you guys in the first service, we have a lot of our young men that are ushering high schoolers and so forth. And I tell the ladies, this is a good opportunity for them to do the servant role so that as they get older, hopefully it will lead them to become leaders in the church. I get to give one of my favorite answers. Well, it depends. Um, I'd say, you know, there's, there's a number of principles here that we're talking about. We're talking about men, women roles. Like, what, what are the ushers doing? If they're just showing people their seats, handing out bulletins, I don't see a problem with it. Even, like, some would say, well, they're telling which people which to leave after the service. Like, that's not exercising authority. Now, if we're asking our ushers to make the determination whether someone is a member or not to go up to communion, well, now that's starting to get into an exercise of authority. Um, especially if you, we would have to ask an usher if there was a situation where we had someone who was under church discipline and they're having to say, no, you're not going up for communion. That's a different situation. And then I think the other thing we have to factor into is, you know, it is an issue of adiaphora. 
is this going to give offense to someone in our congregation that has a more delicate conscience? Um, we have to take that into consideration, too. That, again, just because everything is permissible does not necessarily mean that everything is beneficial. Yeah, that was, that was a great answer. With that, what you said, Nathan, is something else I'll talk about. And I'll bring in things like with catechism and confirmation. I mean, it seem like it's tied in together, but I'll, I'll do it. Is that when I was in Kentucky, because we were down by ourselves, we were an hour away from the closest Wells Church. You know, I've, I regularly confirmed seventh graders. Well, not regularly because we didn't have a whole lot of confirmants every year. So I would take siblings. You know, I might have a seventh grader and a uh, freshman in high school. Then I, you know, for two years, it might be fifth and sixth grade, then through seventh and eighth grade, and so forth. But I very rarely have done that here, because we've got a church two miles away, another one five miles away, and then a bunch in Kenosha. So I want to make sure that what we're doing. Uh, isn't looked weirdly by other people. It's the same thing then with the female ushers, though we might think, hey, this is okay. I have to be concerned as a pastor with what my Christian brothers and sisters are seeing from the outside. I'm pulling up questions from Letting Your Light Shine. So these are both actually kind of similar, so maybe I'll just yeah, I'll just stick with this one. Yeah, we can. I think we can finish up with these two questions then. Do uh, you want both of them? Sure. How do you deal with going from a high school where everyone believes the same thing as you to a college campus where you're surrounded by so many different people who believe different things, and how do you witness to them? Do you want to answer that one first, Jeremy? What what do because I'm I'm curious like how do you counsel your high school students here when they're going into that situation? Because later on I'll tell you what I have told my daughters going into a public school college education. Well, one thing I would say is why put yourself into a position where you are going to be unduly tempted? Uh, do, you, do you really need to be at a college campus where things are going to be that radical? Um, it, if it's really that important to you to get a degree from this particular college for your specific field that you want to pursue, more power to you and God bless your journey. Uh, but then it's going to become twice as important, ten times as important that you, uh, what I've heard our pastor Zarling over here say uh, over and over, that you connect yourself to a campus ministry, uh, that you are regular in attending uh, worship at the nearest Wells Church, and that you are um, staying uh, connected also to your own home church when you do go home, uh, and and enriching your own devotional life but uh, may maybe maybe think maybe before all of that think twice about why you're putting yourself into this is it is it maybe a good example of lot with abraham where they were looking at the sections of field for their different uh, for their different livestock and lot saw oh there are some really green pastures there and that that city looks really wealthy and to uh, you know well to do, and that may be very beneficial in a financial way, but uh, it was obviously a bad influence on Lot in a spiritual way, and maybe you need to think about that before you choose a university that is so foreign to your faith. 
So two things on that. Uh, one is my wife right now is over at one of our members' homes uh, that they are working on putting together uh, some, some things to send as care packages. Maybe it's just gift cards and cards to our college students. And one of the moms had a good idea that I had encouraged uh, Shelly and Jen to do is uh, send the care package to the church where our college students are supposed to be going and let them know your pastor has your care package. When you go to church, you'll get it. You know, that's making sure that at least they're there one time. And then I'll check to make sure that they got their package. Uh, but like you said, Jeremy, why put yourself in that situation? I think of one of the students I had early on in my ministry here in Racine, uh, family is a good family, still members of the church, uh, confirmed this young man. He went to a secular university, and then you know, he graduated, and he was still on an email list. And out of the blue, he just emailed me and said, uh, please stop sending me this propaganda. He had become an atheist while in college. Obviously, he didn't go to campus ministry. Uh, later on, I realized, because I wasn't really tracking this stuff so much then, is yeah, he didn't come to church those whole four years. And I did have another dad where I was really getting into connecting our kids to campus ministry while away from home. He said, oh, it's just four years. It'll be, it's fine if they don't go to church. No, that's, that's the time that they need. Well, we need the church all the time, but they have so many things pulling on them, uh, so many temptations. By God's grace, the dad that said that his son is active in our church, so active that at our church picnic as a young man in his 20s and 30s, he came to me and said, hey, pastor, uh, I want to step up. I'd like to serve on the church council. And my jaw dropped. He goes, what? I said, um, no one says that. <laughs> no one comes up and says, hey, I want to serve. I, and I really appreciate that because he did stay connected to God's word uh, in college and so forth. I just had a debate with my daughter uh, last week over one of the institutions she had said was on her short list. And I said, why don't we just take that one off the list altogether? You are not going to that school. I said, I, that's just going to be, that's just going to be the hard line. And I got thrown back at my face. Well, I'm going to be 18. You can't tell me what I can do. And I said, well, you're not turning 18 till September. So yeah, I can still tell you what you're going to do and you're not going to that school. And then I explained to her, I said, your faith is going to be under constant attack in a way that you've never experienced before. And again, in my thought process, why would you put yourself in that situation when there are places you could get the exact same education and yeah, you might face some attacks, but you're not going to be under the kind of constant assault you would be at certain schools. What's your second question on that? Well, it's very similar, but uh, maybe it'll, it'll spark some different discussion. What Bible passages or even just references should young people have on hand to immediately refute anyone challenging their faith in the categories of legitimacy of the Bible, God's stance on LGBTQ, why we're Christians? I, I have an answer okay. off the top of my head. Um, I, I don't know if it's wise to approach it from the angle of 
here's how you can refute. Because refute means that you're picking a fight and you might win the fight, but you're not likely to win over a soul that disagrees with you. So I think maybe a better question would be, um, are there passages that either of you can think of that would let our light shine on some of these topics or maybe not so much focusing on the specific uh, topics like you know LGBTQ but more so um, letting Jesus and the good news of his forgiveness shine um, and and maybe overpower the darkness of some of those criticisms of the Bible yeah we just talked about this in catechism class today I was telling the students, I said, I'm trying to give you the tools and the way I teach this and the homework I give you so that when you face critics, whether it's in a secular high school or secular university or secular workplace, that you're being, your faith is being challenged, that you don't cower in fear. Is I'm trying to challenge you in a safe space like our grade school, and then, you know, at home as you do this homework with your parents. Uh, and, and I tell them, too, is you know the Bible better than most people. Even as eighth graders, you know this stuff really well. And I, and I don't expect them to necessarily be able to uh, quote a Bible verse because I'm not very good at just off the top of my head quoting a verse. But I do tell them, You've learned a lot of hymns. You've learned a lot of Bible verses, a lot of catechism. It's in there. Tell, tell the story. Tell your story. Make it real to that person. And as you're telling that story, I trust the Holy Spirit's going to give you the right words. And some of those words are going to be God's words that are coming back out, even though it may not be chapter, verse of a specific uh, Bible reference. I just kind of touched on this with my with the Bible study we were doing on Sunday. And I said, you know, there, there's a place for apologetics, for refuting, I would say, error, especially if, you, if someone's coming at you, attacking you, to be able to defend Scripture, I think is important. But you're not going to convert that person by arguing with them. Um, that's, you need to build a relationship with someone. Um, and just off the top of my head, I was thinking about why are we Christians. I would go to 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter of the Bible, as a place to start. Why do we believe this? Well, this is why. And I was just thinking about it, and it occurred to me that right now, I think in our society, the LGBTQ issues are almost like the Pharisees asking Jesus whether it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar. You're not going to give a correct answer. And I think it's more doing what... And again, we're not going to do it as well as Jesus because he was a master because he knew their hearts. He was a master being able to turn their questions around on them in a way that they couldn't. They realized, okay, we're, they're, they're just asking you this to it. They were just asking him to attack him. And I think that's almost what we have to start doing with the LGBTQ issues that it, we, we can't, we need to confess the truths of the Bible, but by constantly confronting we're not winning the argument that if we can turn it around and maybe change the convert well why are you you know ask the i find a fantastic way of sometimes disarming stuff is to ask questions well why are you asking me this what do you think about this and then start having a conversation instead of having an argument with somebody yeah and i think that's that's key is the questions but like i said 
the stories. I like telling stories. And we're doing a sermon series right now, Stories Jesus Told. And the introduction with that is a third of what we have of Jesus saying is stories. And uh, so people learn from stories. They learn from them telling their stories. But we have to be willing to listen more than we're always just speaking stuff. I thought of another answer because I don't, I know this is one of my students writing this. What Bible passages uh, should young people have on hand? Uh, how about the ones that I assign in your memory work? <laughs> Amen. Uh, so we'll wrap it up there. For our listeners, obviously we appreciate you listening to Jeremy and Nathan and I with these podcasts. And once a month we're trying to do these special podcasts and we want you not just to listen to them, but then we want you to share these. If you have other people, especially young people, uh, to share them with your teenagers, with your college students, with your young adults, that's what this is designed for, is being able to uh, answer their questions. Because what I do when this episode drops is then I text it to our eighth grade parents, uh, and then I text it to the high schoolers and the college students and their parents. I don't know if they they listen to it, but I'm trying to get them to listen to it. And I encourage you as listeners to get other people to listen to all of these podcasts because uh, people have these questions. And I think the questions that our young people have, they're very real and they're very real to them, but they're the same questions that we as adults have. We're just oftentimes afraid to ask them. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends. Quench that thirst in the water of life. 